Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Welcome to the House of Pod, a show where we pull back the curtain on the world of medicine, we answer questions about your health, and we interview great guests. I'm Joe, and I'm not a doctor. And I'm Lizzie. And I'm Kaveh. And we're two gastroenterologists. What's a gastroenterologist? You know, the doctors who work with your digestive system. Say what? You know, your liver, your pancreas, your intestines. Where now? Your butt, Joe. It's your butt. Oh... Hey everyone, it's Kaveh from the House of Pod. I hope you're doing well. hope you're all staying inside, staying safe. You're washing your hands, not touching your face, moisturizing when you need to. As you know, we've been discussing the coronavirus a lot, and we will continue to do that. There's so much new information on a daily basis, and so much we're still learning about it, and we will continue to do that. But in the meantime, believe it or not, there are still other medical problems that we need to address. And one of the medical issues we need to discuss is palliative care. We recently had a Dr. B.J. Miller on the show. He's a really great palliative care doctor at UCSF with a pretty remarkable personal story that he'll share with us as well. And I think it's important that we talk about palliative care right now because with the amount of sick people we have in this country, we need to talk about treating suffering and not just treating the disease process. So stay tuned. It's a great talk. And if you want to reach us, please do so at hopquestions at gmail.com or find us at Twitter at the House of Pod. Stay tuned and stay safe. Because I have not come up with a new intro yet for 2020, how are we doing? We're good. I think we're going to stick to how we doing. No, but I mean, you know, I'm like, eh. I'm like, should I do something different than, eh. welcome back to the House of Pod. I feel like maybe if you could do it less piercing. 
But then it's not fun if you're not uncomfortable. That's fair. That's fair. Let's <laughs> let's try to figure out something that makes me really uncomfortable and do that for at least two years. And welcome back to the House of Pod. I'm Kave. I'm Lizzie. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing well. We have a great guest coming up. I'm really excited to hear um, mostly Joe's question, but also mm-hmm. to interview BJ Miller. It's going to be great. BJ Miller. He's a palliative care doctor. He has a book called A Beginner's Guide to the End, and you can find out more about it at abgtte.com. And you can also find out more information about his new center, the Center for Dying and Living, at thecenterfordyingandliving.org. Stay tuned for a great interview. If you guys have any questions for us, don't forget, you can email us, hopquestions at gmail.com. You can call us, 408-444-66223. Find us at Twitter, at The House of Pod. You can also find us at Facebook as well. Um, a big thank you to Nadim, Joe, and Lizzie for editing, sound, etc. Um, anything else, Lizzie? I mean, you should always thank Kave. We never thank Kave. So yeah, keep up point. the good work on the social media aspect and the outlines for our guests for questions. Great work as usual, Kave. <laughs> Stay tuned. We have an amazing guest coming up. On the show today, we have Dr. B.J. Miller, a palliative care doctor at UCSF Medical Center, the author of the book, A Beginner's Guide to the End, Practical Advice for Living Life and Facing Death. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, guys. Yeah, it's a real pleasure. Um, We've both seen your TED Talks, and I've heard you on NPR, and we're really um, super excited to have you, so thank you. Thank you. Um, So before we get into your own personal story, just for our listeners who might not know, can you tell us... What you tell your patients, your family, your friends, how you define palliation or palliative care and what hospice means? Mm, yeah, no, thanks for that question because it's, I mean, even within medicine, a lot of people don't know what the heck palliative care is. Yeah. Um, and the huge problem of conflating it with end of life care because um, then people are are terrified of palliative care guys. We're the grim reapers and no one, you know, so that, that I, I welcome any opportunity to unpack that a little bit. So thank you. I mean, the, the definition of palliative care, I, I, the word palliate means to ease. And I think, you know, that's a pretty good, our, our thing we're after is quality of life, that good sort of subjective stuff. I mean, one way to think of palliative care is it, it's the team-based treatment of suffering versus the rest of medicine you guys know is the treatment of disease. So we treat suffering and suffering is subjective and everyone does it, but everyone does it differently. And so that kind of, that gets you in the mindset of a palliative care clinician. Hospice um, is a subset of palliative care, um, reserved towards the treatment of suffering, you know, specific towards the end of life. So that's it. So one thing that's really important for your listeners to get is you do not have to be dying anytime soon to benefit from palliative care. That's yeah. huge. That's I think, a big, big deal. I mean, yeah. even like you said, even amongst doctors, I don't think that's entirely clear to a lot of people. No, it's not. I know it's not. Yeah. Uh, I mean, some of my patients in clinic I've seen for 12 years, you know, or some are in remission, but they're still struggling. Right. Yeah. Right, right. And the concept of treating suffering is not separate from treating disease. Mm-hmm. We've talked about it on the show mm-hmm. and that treating suffering can actually... 
expedite treating disease. Yes, exactly. And that's such an important point. I just cut you off. Sorry. No. No, it's such a key point. It used to, when I did my fellowship in 2006, I sort of inherited this basic gist, which was you can go for quantity of life or quality of life. There was a fork in the road around that, that you really couldn't have both. That you had to make a choice, quantity, quality or quantity. But as you're pointing out, one of the things we've learned, and there's enough data now to you know, we, we can say with confidence that you're not likely going to shorten your life with palliative care. And if anything, you're probably going to extend it. And right. that's thrilling. So that's another false dichotomy is quality versus quantity. Right. That's a huge point to make because we know so many people, I think, Kaveh and I at work, and I'm sure you do, mm. where you say, let's get palliative care involved. And everyone interprets that as now we're giving up. Right. So what do you say to those people who have that? interpretation. Well, we have this very conversation. We say, well, you know, I understand that thinking. You don't want to shame anybody. That's our that's our big deal in I care. get it that you're dumb, but <laughs> yeah. here's what actually is oh, happening. Oh, how cute. I pat them on the head. This is like <laughs> mansplaining, sort of. Yeah. 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 dick explaining. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, so no, I basically have a version of this conversation. Say, yeah. hey, I understand that's your thinking, but the truth is, much. Yeah. I got good news for you. You know, palliative care is actually, if anything, to help you feel better, but if anything, it'll help you live longer. And yeah. And people, hmm perk up yeah so this focus on palliation and decreasing the suffering of others and even teaching people to face their own death mm-hmm. it sounds like it came from your own personal experience it sounds like mm-hmm. you had you've been very open about your personal experience uh, as a triple amputee mm-hmm. can you tell us what happened and how that led you to this point yeah so i <clears throat> sophomore year of college screwing around one night um on a commuter train out east and I had a metal watch on. I got up on top of the train and like the buses here in San Francisco, the wires run overhead. And and when I got stood up, I I metal watch attracted the power and it arced to the watch and that was that. So I ended up losing my left arm below the elbow and both legs below the knees. Um, And that was my, you know, I was 19. That's where it really opened my eyes to the sort of brutal facts of mortality and, um, you know, that it's real and that it's uh, close by at all times. Right. Um, And that eventually got me interested in in medicine. I hadn't been pre-med or any of that stuff. In fact, I was an art history major. I did the pre-meds after college. But the impulse was to find some line of work where all the things I was learning from being a patient, from being a disabled person, find some outlet for me to exercise those lessons in, 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 a, in a, some sort of service-oriented way. So I felt in some ways uh, a debt of gratitude to so many people who had helped me survive. And so part of me just wanted to pay that forward, you know. But, but I think the big thing was really it felt like I was learning lessons that seemed too important to keep to myself well, that's really interesting because I feel like if that happened, I think some people would have the exact opposite response mm. where they're like, I don't want to deal with that anymore. I yeah. want to forget about that part of my life. You sort of like leaned into that part yeah. of your life. Um, yeah, right. Like I never want to go into another hospital again. I think I've spent enough time. There. Yeah. yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, let's do residency. <laughs> right. Woo-hoo. No, I mean, you know, sure, there was moments where this was not, it took me years. I almost quit a few times. I mean, this was not an uh, immediately easy fit. I wasn't, I wasn't even really that interested in medical science. So going into medical school wasn't necessarily all that much fun. But eventually, 
I think one of the things that got me through some of those early years, and it's not just me, I think it's a common response, a sort of a divergent path is, can you find curiosity in your new shoes? Can you find something to be interested in, in your situation and learn from? And then all of a sudden you're on some sort of process of discovery. And, you know, that's a very different attitude. And I inherited that thanks to my family and others. Um, And that was very therapeutic. Um, And I think, but you're also pointing to something, which is for those of us who find ourselves becoming disabled, you know, one thing we've learned from it as a sort of a civil rights issue, it's nothing to be ashamed of. It's very normal. We all, our bodies fall apart one way or another eventually. And it's our language that gets in the way. So disabled implies there's something really wrong with you. You're abnormal. But that we just know that that's not true. And as such, the idea is that you're not going to, I mean, every day I have to put my legs on. I can't, there's no part of me that's going to forget my situation. I mean, I would have to forget my life. Um, so by virtue of being interested in my life, I was interested in my situation and that allowed me to want to work with it rather than try to overcome it or put it behind me. Cause that just was plain impossible. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You learn depths of empathy and also do have, yeah started this experience of yours and this life of yours, this new version of your life starting at the age of 19 when yeah. you're a young man mm-hmm. in America, mm-hmm. the world is yours. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's really such a curveball, right? Like that must have been yeah. really hard to cope with and adjust to. It was, of course, it was not a cakewalk and there period it was not a linear progress, et cetera, et cetera. But I had a running start. I had a family. My mother has been disabled from polio her whole life. And so I was around... I, I knew that we weren't, our value didn't exist in four working limbs, for example. Huh. I knew, I, I knew enough, it was baked into my own experiences as a kid to, to, to sort of see beyond the shame that you inher- can inherit as a disabled person. Right. And I knew that this, there was something bigger happening and I yeah. knew there was a place for me in the world. So I had a real running start. Yeah. It's very lucky to it even have that perspective though. It was super lucky. Yeah. yeah. In medical school, did you find uh were there extra i'm assuming there were some extra challenges you had to face Mm. being a triple amputee yeah i mean what did what were they how'd you overcome them well for one i i think my in a a very healthy way i was not uh attached to becoming a doctor i knew thanks to this curveball i mean i knew that yeah maybe medicine would be good maybe it wouldn't be maybe i could do it maybe i couldn't and i was just you know i was very straight ahead with myself there and i also knew that if anything that those experiences of being a patient were going to be what set me apart i wasn't some genius i wasn't you know a brilliant in medical sciences blah 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 to to carry me but i did have this interesting story and a way into empathy a way into having been a patient having been yeah. Yeah. uh saved by this healthcare system that i was signing up to work for um so that Rather than, again, part of this not overcoming but working with, you know, so when I applied to medical school, I, you know, I wrote about that very plainly. I made the case that this was going to help make me a better doctor for whatever disadvantages it came with. It had advantages, too. And I basically sold that story. Mm-hmm. And I, I believed it, you know. Um, yeah, it's a good story. It's a good story. And yeah. I think it's sort of true. I mean, I get a it's running totally start true. with my yeah. patients. My yeah. patients see me, take one look at me. They know I've been in the bed. Mm. And I get to trust with patients generally faster than I think a lot of my colleagues. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So, and I, I just kind of put it out there. Interestingly, this would have been, this is 1996 or so when I was applying and a lot of medical schools I didn't hear back from, but a handful I did. And like UCSF where I ended up as a student, you know, they, 
were actively interested in the story and not, they weren't yeah. kind of covering their tail, trying to not discriminate. And mm, they weren't, yeah, you know, yeah. and I, I made it easy on them by just talking about it. So they didn't make them ask. So it worked out. I got into UCSF, a place that I wouldn't, but otherwise I'm like, frankly, I'm pretty, I'm sure with my test scores, it's without, <laughs> without this story, I would never. Yeah. So it was there. all worth it. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> to some I degree, there's again, some truth. Right. To some degree, there's yeah. truth in that. A well, lot of good has come from it. Yeah. Well, obviously, again, you have a very positive spin. You have some great circumstances, but you also have clearly a positive outlook, which we know helps many things. Help. And if those of uh, listeners who don't know, medical school, residency, and a, a fellowship, mm-hmm. which is the training for you in palliative care, requires a lot of mental and physical stamina a lot yes. of times. Yep. Um, so along the lines of palliative care, um, you yeah. did do a fellowship, yep. which is extra training by choice in palliative care. Um, which is a lot of, as we said at the beginning, treating suffering, mm-hmm. making people kind of shift their perspectives and make outline their goals in life, you know, mm-hmm. whether they have one week left or like you said, you took care of someone who had 12 years yeah. left in their life. Um, but at the time of death, um, what do you find troubles people the most about mm-hmm. death? Is it the fear of not knowing? Is it you know the pain? Is mm-hmm. that what, are people scared of pain? Are people in pain? Mm-hmm. Is it leaving others behind what do you find is kind of a common theme that you have to Mm. manage people through if that's something you've experienced yeah for sure i mean there's it's sort of an it's from in many people it's an undifferentiated kind of pile of emotion that's not you know sometimes it smells like fear sometimes it's sort of anger i mean it just looks like a zillion different ways not from person to person but with any in any one person yeah you know one's attitude to their own demise is that's you know fertile and shifty ground. Um, so sometimes it presents, and I have found it a kind of a useful with patients, a useful distinction to be made. And sometimes this stuff's a little overly convenient, but it makes the point. I mean, that some folks when, when push comes to shove are really terrified of the suffering that they assume or presume must happen during the dying process. Mm -hmm. And I, that's an easy, I, I like hearing that in a way because I could, there's a lot I can say. I can say, well, actually we know a lot about how to treat pain and nausea and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, that's in the, you know, get the hospice or palliative care team involved or just a, a thoughtful doc. Um, you can do so much to push back on that suffering. Um, and that is usually is easy enough to reassure people. And it, it's also true to like you guys probably experience this. Many of us do that you know, like anticipating something is often worse than actually being in it. Right. Mm-hmm. And right. I, I, so I can help folks grasp that idea and they can relax. And this is where the power of getting folks into the moment, et cetera. So living sort of in the present moment is a, is a, is a big salve here. But, and then otherwise another sort of bucket is folks who are afraid of being dead, you know, who are freaked out about being dead. And that's, that's super fertile zone. I mean, that's, that's, those are the biggest questions of, of, of religion, of philosophy. This is huge, interesting stuff. So, you know, being, not being, to be or not to be. I mean, this is, you know, very We had you on the show ground. to answer the question. Understand? <laughs> Get out. Well, that's, so, so that's a follow-up question then. Let me ask you, do you find that people who have religious beliefs, particularly mm-hmm. like who believe in an afterlife, do you find that they have an easier time Mm. Uh, than patients who don't. Do you find discernibly there's any difference or is everyone when it gets to that point kind of at the same place? Well, for starters, especially when when you got skilled help along for the ride, like in, for example, hospice, 
I will say that most, when it comes down to it, by the time death rolls around, very often the patient is ready to go one way or another. I mean, their body is just, they're, they're just done one way or another and right. the end is here. And there's oftentimes a lot of that fear melts away. In some ways, it's a harder course for folks who have to keep living, you know, the families, et cetera. So that's one point to make. But to your question about religion, absolutely. I think in my experience, and I've read a little bit about others who have, who have the same sort of gist, which is religion can be really powerful force. Uh, it obviously offers answers to a lot of these questions, a lot of these fears. Um, the trick is you have to believe it, you know? So mm -hmm. what I've seen is folks who have, who would have signed up as being religious, but you know, folks, some folks that just sort of like, Oh yeah, you know, raised in a tradition, they go to church on Sunday or whatever else and have never really doubted and given doubt any breath. They've never really examined their faith. It's just sort of an unchecked uh, assumed faith. Yeah. Those guys, if the, if you're at your deathbed and that's the first time you're questioning the, the, your, your faith, that's a really, that's really <laughs> that's a hard. Rough spot. That's right. a very rough spot. There's so, not much time to recover from that. Those are kids who just went up, you know, grew up mm. doing it as part yeah. of their routine yeah. and never thought about it and yes. just continued to go because that's what you're supposed to yeah. do. Yeah, inertia. You know? and yeah. yeah, like brushing your teeth. Why do we do that? <laughs> yeah. Right. What? That's a, that's a good reason to do that. <laughs> yeah. That makes, that makes total saying, sense. You do have to, I don't think that anyone believes anything unless you're really questioning it or yeah. or having some introspection True. hard in to any understand decision. something unless yes. you can really question it yes yeah. and you have to look at it from multiple angles you have to really roll around with it you have to suffer doubt you have to really yeah that all that stuff is very important so i would say atheism is just as durable at the end of life if it's also checked i've met a lot of atheists who it's a sort of a sloppy they just inherited it whatever else and then all of a sudden they find themselves at the end wondering about well gosh maybe or having experiences that sort of point to some existence of something that they can't see or smell and so they're questioning their lack of faith in a way and then all of a sudden there, there, there can be regret around that like why did i not this is a very interesting question this is a very consequential question so atheism or full-on fundamentalist religious person the trick i think really comes down to is how well have you digested your faith or faithlessness yeah yeah um so switching gears a little bit or i mean mm -hmm. obviously it's all about kind of end of life and palliation but in california in particular there's been a lot of debate on physician assisted suicide mm -hmm. um and obviously you have practiced with it as a physician and you also have personal experience can you tell us about your experience with your sister and then kind of maybe more the political, legal yeah. ramifications of what's been going on? Sure. So my sister, Lisa, she's my older sister. Uh, she was four years older than me. Um, she killed herself. She took her own life uh, when she was just almost 33 years old. So I was 29. I was senior in med school. Um, and that was, I mean, she there's a lot to say about Lisa and there's a lot to say about that whole experience. Of course, um, she was posthumously diagnosed with bipolar depression. Um, as my parents tried to piece everything together and they read a lot of her journals with a psychologist and a psychiatrist and, you know, kind of did forensic work that way. And it was interesting. Like she was, she just, so every criterion, I mean, she just was the classic, 
I don't know how we all, or I know how we all missed it, including therapists. It's because she was so friggin' smart that mm-hmm. she could have you thinking oh. anything she wanted. And that that's was... The, that's the problem exactly. when you're smart. Exactly. to be dumb like us. Exactly. That's why we... Exactly. Okay. That's why I'm very happy to be a little dim. Because um, there's something very useful in that, that you don't pretend to know. You can't manipulate right. your way out of everything. You can't fool yourself. You can't fool exactly. others as well. Yeah. yeah. So, that's, so that was a trap that poor Lisa fell into. But honestly... I I say poorly so it's really poor us we miss her um whether she's in a better place whether she's not so i don't really know but i do know that she really meant to do this this was not a cry for help this was she was very clear about this and she was she was done and i think she makes the point and a good segue here is that she makes a point that sometimes death is actually the choice like something's actually desired i think most of us the tonic backdrop is you just you presume that death is all bad no one wants to die everyone wants to keep living that's what kind of what we all that's the assumption but that's just not true this is not true I mean, whether it's suicide or people who are ready to go ready to die when it's their time uh, at some point death is welcome for a lot of us so that brings us to this idea of physician assisted suicide so the, the language the language the latest language um now we now we say aid in dying or medical aid in dying because the word suicide has sort of pathology implied. Um, and so just FYI, that, that the, the naming has shifted. Now the latest thinking is aid in dying, which is essentially uh, basically in the seven or eight states now where it's legal that you, if you have a terminal illness, you can go through this sort of two-week process and get yourself a prescription for a lethal dose of medication. Right to end your life at the time you choose. So there's a lot to say about this. This poses huge sort of moral quandaries to the healthcare system. A lot of folks who, you know, their idea of medicine is that I signed up, I took an oath to protect and preserve life, and death is the opposite of life, and so therefore death is to be kept at bay at all costs. I have a different Point, personally, I have a different point of view on that, that death is a part of life and that my pledge to protect and preserve people's lives, including includes helping them through their death. So personally, I have I, 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 I do not have a problem morally with that. Um, I don't see it as against my oath. Um, it is there's a there there are cautions. Of course, sometimes one of the biggest reasons people, patients say that they want to die, want to hasten their death, Mm -hmm. is often because they feel like a burden. That's a word that comes up a lot. They feel like they're burdening their family for caretaking, caregiving, financially, et cetera. And uh, and very often there's some truth to that. I mean, we're, you know, bankruptcy is the number one, uh, healthcare costs are the number one cause of bankruptcy, personal bankruptcy in this country by, by miles. And most of those people who go bankrupt have health insurance. It's not a insured versus uninsured issue. Um, so anyway, there's a lot we could talk about there. But the idea that you want to hasten your death because you're a burden to your family, a burden to society, I find very sad and very yeah. telling and yeah. very honest, too. There's some truth to it. Um, so what you're going to say? I was going to say, do you, um, yeah, That first of all, that's something we, we talk about here uh, a you know, quite a bit. In fact, we, you know, on a sort of related note, we talked with um, a guy named Robert Evans. He has a podcast Mm. called uh, Behind the Bastards. He's Mm. like studies the worst people in history and he follows all Mm. these awful hate groups. And we Mm. asked him, you know, how will the end of the world come? And it 
basically boils down to him saying it's going to come because we don't have good health care. And, wow. and what that means is like there's going to be some bad virus and it's going to spread because people don't want to take the time off of work. Mm-hmm. That is a major concern. That's a major concern. In this particular case, though, do you feel that you have to... Uh, is there are times when you talk to these patients and you're trying to get to the root of what's going on and they want to die just because they're in so much pain? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yes. It's, and in those cases, I mean, that's got to be sort of good news in a way, right? I mean, do you find that you can tell, uh, can you, in those cases, direct them away from the suicide? Do you feel like yeah. that's the right thing to do? Or do you feel if someone's made their mind to do that, you can't really change that? No, I mean, what you bring up is a really important point is what is the role? I mean, we as a physician, we're sanctioned by the state to be the arbiter. We're the gatekeeper on this. We decide whether someone deserves, meets criteria, deserves to hasten their own death. That's a huge power that we have. And I'm not sure a lot of our colleagues deserve that power (laughs) because of our own fears around death, our own lack of understanding about palliative care, what's possible to push back on that pain and suffering, et cetera. So, um, no, I think one of the things though, the cautions here is like, I'm trained to do this, but if I, you know, as, as the gatekeeper, I, you know, when someone comes to me with this idea of hasting their death, I have a responsibility to ferret out what's behind that request. Sometimes it's family pressure, whether right. they feel a burden or it's implied or otherwise, sometimes there's secondary gain for family members. It sounds horrible, but mm-hmm. that's true. Very often though, it's a cry for help of untreated, uh, undertreated pain. That's a yeah. pretty darn common thing. And so, you know, very often it's, Hey, not going to hasten your death, but let's get you into palliative care. Right. Um, and it's also true. I've heard some of my colleagues in palliative care say that we can treat any suffering. Just give us a chance. I, I, that's bullshit. I do not. We can't treat all suffering. We're pretty good at it. A lot of it, but not all of it. But it's on us then to offer these guys other alternative ways to find some, eke out some comfort in their life while they still have it. And I'll say one more thing about it is one of the data points we know from Oregon. It's been the, the, since 1997, the first state to have this law, um, is that a big chunk of people who apply for this medication and get the medicine to end their life, never use it. Right. Uh, again, like we were saying earlier, a lot of this is like, like you anticipate that this is going to be horrible. And it's just really nice to have that parachute in the cupboard that if right. it really gets so bad, then I got this out. But very often people don't need it. Right. It's a parachute, but it's also empowering. Right? Yes. It's very empowering because yes. that's what something that we've talked about on the show before is being ill and maybe facing your death is just completely overwhelming. You feel weak, you feel hopeless, and then all of a sudden you have some control. Yeah. And that's really important. That's the salve itself. Yeah. yeah. And just for our listeners, you can't just go and get this medicine. No, and like, no, you no, know, no. like we said that this is what it is. It's aid in, you know, kind mm-hmm. of expediting your death. Mm-hmm. It's just not that easy, right? It, there are people kind of guiding you through it. You can't just go to the pharmacy and be that's like, right. boop. That's right. Um, so we have two more things. One is a question from Joe. Mm-hmm. But one thing I've heard you talk about, and I want you to just touch upon is that palliative care, I've heard you say, shouldn't be like this separate entity where you need like a separate consult. It should mm-hmm. be part of our everyday discussion mm-hmm. with our patients in mm-hmm. the office, in the hospital. What would you, what's your proposal? How do you see that changing? That mm-hmm. this isn't just a separate entity from the patient you're caring for? Mm-hmm. It's a really, yeah, it's a good question. A good systems issue kind of question too. I mean, so in the fee, in our field, in this field of hospice and palliative medicine, that's the official title of the field, um, we realize 
that we're never going to train enough specialists who've done fellowships and all this stuff to tend to the load of suffering we currently have. And then if you take into account the aging population and people living with multiple chronic illnesses and blah, 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 no way are we going to have enough folks who have this kind of training. So, and nor should we make this a subspecialty. I mean, if, if suffering and death are the most normal things that anyone ever does, if we all go through these things, then this work really deserves to be bread and butter medicine, period, that you yeah. really shouldn't need a specialist for some of this stuff or much or even all of this stuff. And there are those of us in the field who aspire to someday, if we can sort of right the ship of healthcare and get it on the right tracks, that the specialty of palliative care would go away, that we wouldn't need these subspecialists to do this work. We're a long way away from that. But meanwhile, our approach basically is to say, now we separate primary palliative care from specialist palliative care. And so a lot of us are driving palliative care principles deeper into medical and nursing and social work and chaplaincy education so that right now it's largely an elective. Someone has to seek this kind of training. But these principles, again, should be foundational. So if we succeed in that, then most any new graduate from, again, medicine, nursing, social work, chaplain, this will be baked into their training. And they'll be able to do a lot of this work themselves as the primary provider. And they won't need a specialist. And that would reserve the few specialists for these very intractable cases. Mm -hmm. And that's that's so that's the ideal we're heading for. Yeah. 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 Well, uh, that might tie into this question that Joe has. Mm -hmm. So Joe is not. He, he's the drummer. He, he's the drummer. Joe the drummer. <laughs> he is not here with us today. Um, he is alive, just not here with us today. Hi, Joe. I feel like I need to say that every time. <laughs> and uh, here is a question that he has for you. Hi, Dr. Biller. Um, I've read a lot about you on several different sources as of late, and I was very touched by your story specifically about Randy Sloan, the patient um, who died of cancer, and you had done a lot of things to help him cope with death towards the end of his life. Uh, my question is this, is there any current training for doctors in regards to palliative care, and where do you see the future of this headed? Uh, what do you feel will help the medical industry adopt the ideas of palliative care more so than now? We'd love to, love to hear your thoughts. Thanks. We love that guy so Thank much. Thank you, Joe. Oh, oh hi. Oh, hi. Aaliyah <laughs> <laughs> He's so cute. He's not a doctor. This is the, He's the best part of the show. He's yeah. hooked on phonics. Yeah, exactly. Uh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, so, righto. I mean, you know, for, well, thanks for bringing up Randy, for one. I was... Uh, and he's a, a wonderful memory I get to have. Uh, Randy Sloan was, a, I think he was 27 when he died. He was a young man who had helped build out a motorcycle for me to to use one-handed. And I got to know him that way. And then, then not too long after that, he ended up being my patient. And then he ended up dying with us at Zen Hospice Project. So it was just a remarkable course. Excuse me. Um, um, but, you know, what I did with... And what a lot of this work boils down to is basically some sort of skillful accompaniment. You know, I'm not oftentimes doing a bunch of things to people. It's more that sort of 
bread and butter really is listening and sort of not running away from stuff you can't fix. That's really the skill set in a lot of ways. And that's very hard for us to do. It's like holding silence. It's a very hard thing to do. We just kind of rush. We want to intervene. We want to do something. So that's Randy did all the work. Um, and I just got to ask him sort of some guiding questions and kind of hold a mirror up to the reality he was facing. But he did almost all that work. The one question I asked Randy that f- proved to be sort of uh, particularly consequential was we were trying to find a way forward for him. Chemo, no chemo, what to do. Uh, and the question became, you know, what are you, what Randy, what do you love most about yourself? What are you most proud of in yourself? What is, what do you want your, and therefore, what do you want to have, what do you want your residue to be? And he had an answer ready made. He said, I just, I want, I love everybody and I want everyone to know that. And so he just played out his remaining days as this sort of love machine. And we just, he just held court and people came through and he just loved it. Them. It was beautiful. <laughs> it was beautiful. But that meant, so we're not going to be spending time in an OR. We're not going to be spending time in an ICU. We're not going to be spending times where time where he can't do all that loving so easily. Yeah. And it was a really important advanced directive in a way for him. But back to Joe's, the rest of Joe's question. Yes, there is, there is fellowship training in hospice and palliative medicine. Two, since 2006, the, the, the field is officially, the medical specialty is called hospice and palliative medicine. So you can pursue this sort of subspecialty training. Or like we were saying a moment ago, hopefully you'll find yourself in an, an enlightened medical or nursing or social worker chaplaincy school that has these concepts built in from the start. So whatever you're studying, you will embrace or you will absorb some amount of palliative care training. That's coming. Uh, I think in terms of the change that I think, Joe, I think you're asking for that I want to see too is, is going to come from uh, basically th- three, three, th- we're all working on three different, th- maybe four different things, but at least three, one would be policy. So how is healthcare reimbor- reimbursed? How is it incentivized? This idea of how do we pr- pursue a, a value-based system versus one that just does more shit to people mm-hmm. uh, irrespective of the effect on the person. Um, so moving towards a, vo- value, a value-based system, that's a policy issue. Second would be med- overhauling medical education. The idea, we're all, all the medical training we've ever gotten is from the Flexner Report of 1910. I mean, it's, it's very outdated. It made a lot of sense in 1910, but it's basically the idea that research was ruling the roost for healthcare and knowledge and acquisition of knowledge was the way forward and the patient had a sort of incidental role in that knowledge acquisition i think it's time to flip that and make the patient's experience the primary one that we're pursuing um but bottom line is we have to kind of revisit how we think of medical education why is this like we were saying earlier if this subject touches every patient that any of us is ever going to see why is this not more fundamental to our training yeah Instead, right now, it's an elective. So so overhauling medical education, big piece. Then the last thing is really sort of public engagement. This is something I'm working on through the book and other stuff of just speaking. And your podcast will help is getting the public to engage their own experience with illness and their own experience with healthcare and to co-lead it with us, if not totally lead it with uh, for us. So right now, it's very common that patients don't want to disappoint their doctors. And they'll mm. do all sorts of stuff that they don't want to do because they don't want to disappoint the doctors, yeah. which is crazy. I mean, it's got to be the other way around. And we don't make it any better in healthcare. We say we people failed treatment. They didn't fail treatment. Treatment failed them. I mean, the whole, it's all, there's so much that needs to be inverted around this. But the bottom line here is if patients, if the consumer, if the public goes in demanding a different kind of care, they have much more power than they realize they do. Yeah. 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 Well, along those lines, you know, you've done an amazing job 
of getting the word out about this. You do it in a very thoughtful way, and I think it speaks to both doctors and non-medical professionals mm-hmm. alike. So it's fantastic. Thank you. Thank Tata. you for doing what you do. Thank you. Um, it, along with the book, A Beginner's Guide to the End, Practical Advice for Living Life and Facing Death, Tell us about what you're working on now, the, the mm. Center for Living and Dying, correct? Close. Yeah, <laughs> the Center for Dying and Living. Oh. Got the it. Fu- the fun thing is Dying to invert that. So the, 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 the cheekiness behind that title is, is, is basically not, not, I'm not vouching for an afterlife. I'm simply saying, no, no, no. You really want to start living. Come to terms with the fact that you're mortal that you're not here forever per se, that's when the living actually really starts. That's when you kind of wake up yeah. and that's when you start taking your time seriously. Um, so that's the idea. The Center for Dying and Living, the website is thecenterfordyingandliving.org. Uh, it's a mouthful, but that's where we're starting. And the vision of this thing is I'm trying to lean into the, the bigger problem that we all face, which is it's very hard to have a sense of the reality we're facing. It's very hard to get a handle on the truth. Right now we have so much access to information, but not, it's very hard to separate the signal from noise. We don't, it's hard to find knowledge or wisdom. It's really easy to find information that's unchecked and you Google your disease. And I'm sure you guys have this experience. Patients come in thinking they're informed because they've read a bunch of stuff online and you have to kind of unlearn a lot of that junk. So uh, the Center for Dying and Living eventually is going to be a big online archive, a big resource, a repository of information, but pulled from clinical sciences, of course, but also social sciences, popular Uh culture, Uh media, religion, just really round out the subject matter. So when people come to the site, eventually they can get a handle on their disease from multiple angles. That information will be curated. Uh, And meanwhile, what we're doing to start is simply harvesting stories from patients and caregivers to try to get us towards a patient or person centric system. So one of the problems we have in healthcare is sure. I mean, patient centered sounds good to me. The problem is my patients don't really know what they want and they don't really know what they want because they're not really, they don't really have access to information that's really helpful. Mm-hmm. So we have to start this sort of public engagement and education. We need to help uh, patients learn and they need to help us learn. So that's why we're starting with just presenting patient and caregiver stories. That's Thank great. you so much um, for your time, for your Thank message, you. um, for your work, your advocacy. It's really important that people start talking about this today with yeah. their loved ones um, and that doctors start being more comfortable with it. So we really appreciate your time. My pleasure. Thank you, guys. The Center for Dying and Living dot org. Anywhere else people can find you online? Um, am I, I think well, well, the one social media that I do at all is Twitter. That's at BJ Miller, MD. All right. Very cool. Like us on Twitter. Okay. <laughs> All right. All right. Thank you so much for coming. Thank, Thank you, you, guys. A pleasure. And these are clean scrubs, by the way. Sure. Changed right, out pal. of my, I swear to God. <laughs> you come home I and change think. into scrubs? No, no. But before I left work. <laughs> the opinions on this podcast are broadcasted for educational and informational purposes only and do not represent the opinions of our employers. These opinions are not intended as a diagnosis, treatment, or as a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Please consult a local physician or other healthcare professional for your specific healthcare and or medical needs or concerns. All anecdotes and patient-related details have been changed with respect to date, sex, and certain details so that patient identification is not possible.
Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.